Amidst tear gas and rubber bullets, protesters in Belarus have brought the regime of Alexander Lukashenko to the brink. Hundreds of thousands of ordinary people have made their voices heard in every city in Belarus, despite brutal and murderous behavior from the internal security forces. Workers in Belarus's state factories and prized IT sector have gone on strike, and several members of the regime, including the former Minister of Culture, have defected to the opposition. Public television employees, who normally grind out regime propaganda, have refused to work, and have had to be replaced by journalists and technicians provided by Russian state TV. Last weekend, the country's largest ever protest since the end of Soviet rule, spooked Lukashenko so much that he evacuated his palace by a helicopter, wearing a bulletproof vest and brandishing a rifle. Since then, the regime has continued its crackdown, randomly arresting protesters off the street and deliberately attacking journalists and human rights activists. Welcome to Dissidents and Dictators, a series of conversations by the Human Rights Foundation dedicated to exposing and challenging authoritarianism around the world. Andrei Sanikov was a career diplomat and the deputy foreign minister of Belarus before resigning in protest of Lukashenko's policies. He co-founded the human rights initiative Charter 97 and ran for president in 2010. He received the highest number of votes of all the opposition candidates, but was jailed and sentenced to five years in prison after organizing peaceful protests against the falsification of election results. In jail, he was beaten and tortured, but released after 16 months. Today, he continues advocating for democracy in Belarus with the civil campaign European Belarus. I want to start by asking you how you got involved in politics in Belarus and what led you to run for president in 2010. Uh, it's easy how I got involved because I am Belarusian and I never wanted, and of course I was born a long time ago when the Soviet Union still existed and it was I was born a year after uh, Stalin died. But I always felt uh, that I belonged to Belarus, not to the bigger country, which was called Soviet Union. So uh, when uh, Perestroika started, when the changes started to occur in the Soviet Union, I immediately saw that uh, there is a hope and there is a chance for independent country called Belarus. And uh, at that time I was studying in uh, a diplomatic academy in Moscow, but I was uh, uh, hoping that uh, very soon uh, I will be able to work as a diplomat for independent Belarus. And it's uh, it happened so. In uh, I started to work uh, in the foreign ministry of the Belarusian Soviet Socialist Republic, but very soon it became foreign ministry of the Republic of Belarus independent country. So there was uh, no uh, special occasion, special circumstances. I just was naturally working for for the country first as as a Soviet part of the Soviet Union and then as an independent country. That's how I got involved and uh, a, and uh, continue to be involved in the politics. Mm. What led you to run for president in 2010? It was the decision of, uh, it was a collective decision of the team. I had, I'm proud uh, to have the best team in the country and uh, my campaign did demonstrate that we had, uh, for example, we had on my 
team, uh, three former heads of state of Belarus, Stanislav Shushkevich and uh, Mechislav Grip, not, not three, sorry, uh, two. Uh, we had former Minister of Defense of Independent Belarus and uh, other dignitaries, uh, well-known people in, uh, in my country. So uh, that was the time when uh, we, we as a team didn't see that we could support anybody uh, who was intending to, to run. And then we took a decision that I, I have to step in the race and uh, start this campaign uh, in uh, uh, on, on on my own as a candidate and on our own as a team because before we were just supporting uh, other candidates like in 2001 we supported the uh, candidate who was running from the opposition in 2006 we did the same. And there was a lot of disappointments connected with this kind of um, campaign that we were not uh, running but helping to run. So we decided that we're quite ready to run our own campaign. And uh, I think that we did demonstrate that we had the strongest campaign in the country. Mm. And what is different about the 2020 presidential campaign and the aftermath of that than in 2010? Difference is that uh, in 2010, for the first time, Lukashenko used force and brutality on the day of election. He didn't do it before. And because he was waiting for the moment when foreign journalists leave and when uh, international observers leave. So he was so scared with our performance that uh, he was so scared with the support that we got from the people. He, he, he was losing and he lost the, that election. Uh, so, but he was so scared that he started to beat us immediately to use force and arresting candidates, arresting thousands of people. Mm -hmm. This year is absolutely different because he started his uh, uh, crackdown before the election attacking, first of all, the strongest candidates. And it, and it is not only those who were, who declared the intention to run and had the right to run, like banker Viktor Babarika, like blogger Sergei Tikhanovsky, but also the established leaders of the opposition, like Nikolai Stankevich, who is also in prison, and Pavel Severinitz, who is also in prison. So these are four figures that would have easily won the election uh, against Lukashenko with, with a landslide victory. So he attacked them, he attacked their teams, he attacked the, the groups uh, that were collecting signatures, and uh, he, he thought that he uh, prevented uh, the active scenario of uh, his rejection by putting people in jail, by fabricating cases against them. So uh, that is the difference, the level of violence and level of uh, aggressiveness that comes from Lukashenko. But also the, this amazing uh, mood of, uh, of the people, uh, uh, absolutely amazing numbers of people uh, protesting all over Belarus. Uh, in, in previous years, mostly Minsk was the center of the protest. Today we, we see the, that all over Belarus people are protesting. There are 
actually i think the mo- several million people that are taking part in the protest mm-hmm. and 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 they didn't stop despite the uh, not it only force but also the killing that Lukashenko has started in, in the country and despite this uh, ferocious uh, uh, aggressive uh, unlawful uh, uh, activities of his thugs threatening people killing people crippling people throwing people in jail people are still protesting women are protesting old people are protesting a lot of young people so it is it is amazing to see this absolutely peaceful courageous protest all over the country do you think that something has changed in belarusian society that's led to this yeah. new energy in protest yeah absolutely the one word is the people are fed up but he provoked it himself because he he thought that he i mean uh, lukashenko dictator lukashenko he uh, started to demonstrate how much he despised the people he started to humiliate people he started to offend them and i think covid 19 was the red line that people would never forget him uh, because he not only denied the pandemic and and intentionally exposed people to to this virus by organizing military parade by uh, calling the uh, organizing so-called subotnik the free of charge work on on saturday by uh, not allowing schools to close down and uh, thus pushing uh, children to, to go to expose themselves to this virus also but then he started to blame people themselves for dying and in very derogatory terms and then people really saw i think very clearly what kind of person he is what kind of uh, brutal animal he is that's one thing the other thing they started to organize themselves they started to sabotage every decision that he was uh, taking on covid 19. Uh, children were kept at home the par- parents simply didn't allow them to go to school uh, private companies were working online and uh, some of the state companies also were taking decisions not to go to work uh, uh, and and observe social distance wherever possible so i think that that kind of uh, his contemptuous attitude towards people was really the last straw and and now he's break he's crossing every red line which is just adding to the hatred of the people towards him it's interesting that you use the word dignity because many people called the 2014 revolution in ukraine the revolution of dignity as well do you think that similar forces are at play in Belarus, or is this something entirely different? No, absolutely. We, we, you know, we quite often people do not understand what Belarus and Belarus, what Belarus is and Belarusians are, because a lot of dignity, a lot of, uh, let's say, people are maybe more composed, more calm than in some other countries. It takes time to. Uh, to become from good-natured uh, people to to the people who defend themselves against dangers. But uh, 
Definitely, it's it always about dignity. In every revolution, in every protest against dictator, it's, it's always about dignity because dictators are uh, known to hate people. Dictators are known to despise their own people, their own parents, their own children. And I think that in Belarus it is so clear uh, that uh, it is about dignity, it is about the pride uh, of the people, it's about nation, it's about uh, our national identity. Mm-hmm. Because uh, sometimes uh, uh, there I hear approaches that the, because of weak na- national identity, Belarus cannot achieve anything. No, we have very strong national identity. Mm-hmm. Look at the flags. Those are banned flags, white, red and white. <laughs> but they appeared immediately on the very first days of the protest after the uh, so-called election day. And it means that uh, everybody, every family at least, had this flag uh, in, 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 uh, hidden somewhere. And then they came out with, it, with them proudly waving them. Can you explain a little bit more what the history of the white, red, white flag is and what the national identity of Belarusians is and how that's manifesting itself? You know, it was, it was, of course, it was hidden, it was suppressed during the Soviet times because uh, Belarus was uh, the showcase of the Soviet Union. Uh, it was like an exemplary Soviet Republic and uh, it uh, started with the, not started, but it, and that's why we were under enormous pressure culturally, historically, and even language-wise because the, the there was a, a story when uh, uh, Khrushchev came to to Minsk. It was, I think, '59, to uh, to mark the 40th anniversary of the creation of Belarusian Soviet Socialist Republic. And then, first secretary of the Communist Party of Belarus, uh, Kiselyov, uh, he made a speech in Belarusian, and uh, Khrushchev simply hated it. And he said after that he was saying that uh, something like uh, if we want to become really Soviet people, we have to speak Russian, all of us. And Belarus was made uh, an example in this sense also. There was a immediately campaign to suppress Belarusian language. And, uh, and with, with the language, of course, you know that the identity is very closely tied. So it was... Uh, Little, little we knew about our true history, as maybe maybe Transcaucasian republics knew more, because it's different culture. But we were deprived of history of culture, and then all of a sudden, when Perestroika started in the eighties, late eighties, mid eighties, late eighties, we started to discover our own history together with the hi- different history of the Soviet Union, the different history of the Gulag of uh, the prohibited culture of books and uh, f- philosophers and uh, sociologists, really great scientists that were uh, thrown in prison in all over the Soviet Union, including Belarus. We found out that on the night of uh, October 29, uh, 1937, uh, more than 100 creme de la creme of uh, our intellectuals were uh, murdered, by the way, in the same prison that I was kept for, for some time. And those were the names that we didn't know. Some of them we knew, 
they were allowed to be included into our literature books, but many of them we simply didn't know they were. It, the, the purpose was to, to completely kill Belarus and Belarusians as, as a nation, as a country, as, as, as an identity. But 80s did demonstrate that we, uh, we, we survived and we know a lot about our own history. And in the 80s we learned that our flag is white, red and white because it was... And in the 80s everybody learned, of course our historians and our national democratic leaders uh, knew the history very well, uh, that Belarus was proclaimed in 1918 and uh, at that time, the very difficult time, there was a step uh, towards uh, renewing our independence after so many years living under Russian Empire. And then came the flag that was uh, the old flag, of course, with historical roots, but then it became an official flag of Belarusian's pop Belarusian Popular Republic. And uh, since then, uh, uh, this flag was kept uh, uh, in, in memories. And in 1991, it became the state flag of the uh, independent country Belarus. And that's from then, we proudly uh, exposed these flags uh, everywhere. And that's why Lukashenko, uh, first, his first at first attack was on, on the symbols of our national identity, uh, this white, red and white flag and the coat of arms Chase, Pahonia. Uh, he uh, organized a legal referendum and changed them to the quasi-Soviet symbols, like the, it is called Sunset Over the Swamp, mm -hmm. the current Lukashenko flag. Why do you think that Lukashenko has such a nostalgia for the Soviet period? Is it linked to his, you know, desire to be a dictator, sort of savior of the people. Absolutely, he, he hated uh, everything national. Uh, he was, it, it, is, it is really a unique case when a dictator is uh, established and built his regime not, not based on the national identity, but on denial of national identity. Mm -hmm. He posed as internationalist, he posed as the, the guardian of memories and of the Soviet Union and nostalgia over the Soviet Union. And he hated every, every national democratic leader. And, uh, and that's why he attacked the, the symbols. It was important for him to, to reintroduce this quasi, again, quasi, because it, is, it has nothing to, to do with uh, proper heraldic rules, uh, what, what he invented as his flag and and coat of arms. Why? Because uh, he was ambitious from, from the very, from the childhood, I believe, and uh, probably his uh, uh, wildest dream was to become uh, the party leader in, in the region or in the district. And then all of a sudden he was elected uh, president of a country. So he decided that he, his dream came true, and then and he would organize organize his system of government like he saw in the, during the communist regime. So he was yes deliberately consciously following 
practices of, of, of uh, the Soviet Union, but not only. In 95, he said uh, that his ideal model of uh, presidential state is Hitler, uh, Germany under Hitler. And it was not a joke, as we see it. Is there still a post-Soviet mentality in Belarus? Do people still feel nostalgic for the Soviet Union? No, I don't think so. People, if, if they do, they simply don't know uh, uh, what it is to live in, in a proper democratic state where your rights are being protected by the law, not by the whimsies of some party uh, leaders. I don't think that there is a lot of nostalgia, because nostalgia was uh, connected with very simple facts, like uh, some some of them I imagine, like uh, the uh, education free of charge, healthcare free of charge. We, we, we discovered that it's not free of charge, because people were getting miserable salaries and wages in the Soviet times, and... Uh, uh, having s allegedly free uh, services, it, it, they were not free. Everybody in the Soviet Union knew that if you want to uh, have uh, qualified uh, medical uh, advice assistance, you have to uh, pay uh, illegally, unlawfully mm -hmm. to the doctor. But there was a myth that life was protected in the Soviet Union, which was not. So there were people in the uh, early years of Lukashenko rule that were hoping that he will restore this kind of Soviet Union. But it was not his intention. He w wanted to restore the system of power that existed in the Soviet Union to rob the people. And that's what he is doing till, till, till this day. And much has been made about of the relationship between Belarus and Russia. Um, and, you know, people commented that, you know, Putin and Lukashenko don't have a good relationship, but that nevertheless they, they need each other. And how do you think, if the protests are successful, how do you think Belarus's relationship with Russia will change or not change? Is it possible, at least in the short or medium term, for Belarus to be um, entirely independent of Russia? Yes, uh, they uh, really do. I mean, Putin and Lukashenko, they hate each other, but they are of the same kind, you know. They Lukashenko never will uh, trust anybody in the West, for example. He will not trust Putin as well, but uh, he does understand Putin's motivation and he does understand how to blackmail Putin in many cases. Uh, ironically, if... Uh, Without Lukashenko, the relationship with Russia will be much better, much better. But I, I wonder if Putin needs such kind of relationship, more predictable, more law-based than, uh, you know, uh, based on, on criminal and dirty business or some schemes that are uh, hidden from the world but are quite lucrative for the uh, mafioso groups that are ruling both countries. Uh, I think that uh, what we, we are sh watching the same show every year. It's the uh, fight over the oil and gas price that uh, Lukashenko and Putin are 
uh, directing from both sides. It's a show. Mm-hmm. It's a show that they are pretending to be mad at each other. Then they, uh, then Russia, of course, uses use it as a leverage on Lukashenko. It's clear, but uh, it, it is not how. <laughs> how the relationship relationship should go because the relationship interstate relationship are based on uh, on laws on on uh, agreements on treaties that uh, pacta sunt servanda that have to be complied with mm-hmm. and the best example i think this treaty of union state so called union state mm-hmm. it doesn't exist but uh, but everybody is pretending from both sides that uh, there is a union state treaty. Mm-hmm. Is there any chance of this union state treaty um, becoming a reality? There is always a chance because there are a lot of legal, uh, let's say, provisions very dangerous for our independence. Uh, so if uh, Lukashenko manages to to maintain power uh, which is very unlikely uh, even if he tries to stifle the protest today uh, then uh, the independence will re- will be really threatened because he would yield to Putin everything to keep his regime intact to keep his power in Belarus so I think yes it is a very big threat but I hope that uh, Again, uh, I, I wouldn't want to have such a development, uh, to see such development, but uh, I hope that nobody that would recognize anything like that. Mm-hmm. Like uh, uh, nobody, I mean, the, the, the West in general didn't recognize annexation of Baltic states, mm-hmm. which helped them a lot. Uh, it was a precedent, and uh, I think because, because uh, this... Uh, this treaty is is illegal it's unlawful it was signed uh, uh, and then developed uh, uh, without any approval of the people by the by uh, lukashenko who already usurped the power and didn't have authority to sign treaty on behalf of belarus mm-hmm. and by yeltsin it was by the way it was signed by yeltsin that was also not uh, a interstate proper interstate treaty, but uh, something that was used uh, by Yeltsin to help his uh, presidential campaign in ninety six, and later it was mm-hmm. signed in ninety nine. So I think that uh, to answer your question shortly, yes, it's a danger, but uh, uh, it is uh, it cannot be taken as a real thing. I want to get back to the protests today. Um, what do you think victory for the protesters looks like? They've been going on for several weeks now already. There's the biggest protests ever last weekend, um, forcing Lukashenko to flee in a helicopter with a rifle. Um, but what do you think? How do the protesters now win? How, how, how do you think they can achieve their goal of unseating Lukashenko? Well, I, it's not very... Uh... It's not easy, of course, to, to say how it will happen, but uh, I can tell you that he's destroying the basis on, on which uh, he, he himself destroying the basis on which his regime was built and was supported 
because uh, in eventually economy will be ruining uh, his power and his regime. Uh, and today I think he, he has only one support, that is his uh, thugs in uniform and with uh, the ammunition and with weapons. And, and nobody else, uh, even uh, if you see, if you notice that uh, even the government uh, is silent. Uh, you, you don't hear anybody from the government uh, speaking because they're probably hastily deciding when to uh, step down, when to resign. Uh, I think that uh, he is now attacking workers mostly because he uh, the dictators understand if there is a strike and general strike in the country then the, the, it, it will not be the days that are numbered but the hours so that he is doing everything to put pressure to kidnap to throw in jail to oust of the country the leaders of the trade unions mm. not trade unions because we don't have uh, actually independent trade unions, but workers, leaders of workers. Uh, but uh, I think it, it is a really, what we saw is, is the total rejection of Lukashenko and his regime by the country. Mm -hmm. And it cannot go unnoticed. Unfortunately, we don't have uh, adequate reaction from the West. Um, which should have been uh, already three months ago, uh, I would have expected it because people were thrown in jail and tortured. We had very reliable information that people were tortured in jail and uh, all inter international agreements allow to take sanctions against uh, the state that is torturing people. Unfortunately, there was no reaction and till now there is no reaction. And today the situation is much worse because Putin is quite getting ready to interfere and uh, besides uh, there are, again there are not very pronounced statements uh, not very pronounced measures uh, taken to prevent it uh, secretary general of nato stoltenberg made a very good statement but what what would be helpful is to uh, declare that there will be sanctions against Russia if it happens, not only against Lukashenko, but against Russia, because it, it is a really very serious security breach in, in Europe, yet another one after Ukraine, after Georgia. So if, uh, if it is allowed to happen, then uh, every, every European country will be threatened, no matter how far or how close it is from the Belarus and Russia borders. Mm -hmm. and on that topic, you know, something that I think a lot of Western commentators have said is that you know, the most important thing is to maintain Belarus's independence and sovereignty um, because it acts as a sort of barrier between Russia and, uh, and the rest of Europe. Um, how do you think that, you know, how can Lukashenko after, you know, if, if he does ride out the protests, will he be able to be sovereign at all? Will, will, how will Belarus be able to be independent since he relies so much on Putin to to save him now? There, there was a lot of hypocrisy going on uh, with this thesis that uh, we were worried about the sovereignty and independence of Belarus. That is why let us deal with Lukashenko because he is in power and he can guarantee this. He cannot guarantee it. It is obvious 
Italy. And uh, for a long time we were saying that only democratic process could guarantee the independence and sovereignty of Belarus and, and security in the region. If he m maintains power, if he manages to survive, then the security will be really threatened. Both uh, uh, our security and international security in, in Europe. But our independence and sovereignty also will be under threat because uh, uh, I think what is being discussed now, what uh, Putin started to put on the table last year, uh, the so-called uh, roadmap of uh, closer integration. Uh, which, in in Putin's view, is uh, uh, incorporation of, of Belarus into into Russia. Mm. Again, it's it's uh, you know the uh, mistake of the of the West and of Western analysts and uh, strategists, uh, geopolitics, uh, that they are thinking that Putin plays by the rules. And that that Putin follow is following some logic that could be understood and uh, perceived and then dealt with probably no he is not because uh, as I as we discussed before Belarus will be not an enemy of Russia and relationship will be better with with Russia after Lukashenko and in many ways it will be very helpful for uh, Russia, even for, for this regime in Russia, to have not an alienated country in the region for, for a change. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Because it, it, it is, whether I want it or not, you see that the protest, it, the, Russia is not a factor at all. It's not a topic at all during the protest. Mm -hmm. There were some attempts from Lukashenko's side to, to provoke anti-Russian uh, statements, anti-Russian activities. No, people are not buying it. How do you think that Svetlana Chekhanovska in has been leading the protest? Do you see her as an effective uh, future president of, of Belarus? Um, no. No, she is not uh, even the, the, the opposition. She, I think she is under some uh, obligations. Uh, which allowed her to leave the country. And uh, I think I, I'm grateful to her that she survived till the day of election, uh, that she, uh, although she hesitated, and uh, it, it is well known that at, at one point she wanted to uh, abandon the, the race and uh, leave, leave it, I know about two more moments of uh, very difficult f moments for her when she was thinking of uh, resigning. So I'm I'm grateful that uh, she survived till the 9th of August. Uh, uh, but today she 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 is not a leader. She might be a factor that can help. Uh, achieve the resignation of Lukashenko and uh, to help the process of uh, uh, building the future in Belarus. I mean, starting the, 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 the 
coalition uh, talks and uh, then new elections but i don't i don't see it in her now she is uh, distancing herself of of all the real problems yes she is doing something she is saying something but it is uh, not helping so one of the most remarkable things for at least for me watching the protests is how much of the protests have been organized online by bloggers and vloggers and on the encrypted messaging app telegram and particularly the role of for example the blogger Nechta who is working in Warsaw um, and who has now over two million followers on his telegram channel and who almost directs the process the protests um, how do you think that this new you know this how, how do you think this has changed the way that protests in Belarus have taken place and do you see you know and of course Sergei Tekhanovsky was himself also a blogger um, and it was his arrest that sparked the initial protests. Um, so how do you think these new technologies, this new form of media communication, has changed opposition politics in Belarus? I think it's it's a remarkable example, not only for, for us in Belarus, but for the world as well. As, as well. Because yes, you are right, the bloggers uh, were contributing very much to the mobilization of the people against the regime, a lot. That is why I think more than 10 of them are now arrested, are now in prison. Lukashenko, people are trying to fabricate the case against them, uh, probably high treason case. Uh, yes, and blogger Necht and, uh, and then uh, also, the, I mean Telegram channel, also Telegram channel Basta, I can name you, then uh, Belarus, Golovnovo Mosca, so-called, it's... Uh, uh, Belarus of, of the brain damage. Uh, many of them, uh, yes, uh, are really coordinating because uh, the inside Belarus the communication is very difficult. It is blocked. They are blocking the mobile phones. They are blocking more than 40 websites that were providing information about what was going on and, and about the plans of the protesters are blocked today. And Telegram uh, channel, the only channel that is still working if, uh, if the telephone is not blocked and it is still capable of providing information for the people, which is badly needed. And that is why they, by, by definition, they became the organizers of this protest because they provided the, let's say, the, 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 they provided the channel of communication for for all Belarusians to, 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 to understand what, what they could plan and what they could uh, expect. And that is why uh, and it is a collective, uh, I see it as a, as a collective uh, activity, uh, not even sometimes even not coordinated, but when there is a good idea, the, all, all Telegram channels start to promote it and start, start to distribute it over the all kind of... Uh, uh, social media and messengers. And it's interesting that local towns, every local town has its own telegram group, yeah, right, where people can organize within their little local towns. This is, I think, why there have been so many protests, not just in Minsk and in the big cities, but across the entire country. And also uh, another thing is chats. Mm -hmm. Chats are uh, widely used because they are not visible. They could be closed. They could be closed chats between the the people who know or even who don't know each other but who are, uh, who can trust uh, in, in in terms of how to organize the protest, lo protest locally so yes i think it it, it is a 
know-how, which is uh, compared to what we saw in Iran, for example, with, with the Twitter or mm -hmm. what we saw in other places like Hong Kong or in, in, in uh, other places where social media was uh, playing a uh, very important role and now messengers are playing a very important role. Mm -hmm. One of the other similarities that I've noticed between the protests in Belarus and, for example, the protests in Hong Kong was this uh, this new strategy of, of not organizing a protest in one place, but being water. So spontaneously protesting in different points across the city, making it more difficult for the authorities to clamp down on one particular spot. And we saw this happening in Belarus over the past few weeks as well, um, which leads me to suggest that there's there, a, a global protest culture is starting to develop where strategies are shared across different countries and between activists. And I think that, if you'll, maybe you'll agree with me, that this is happening in Belarus as well, where there, people are drawing on tactics from, um, from protest movements around the world um, and using them in their own countries with, with, with differences. Yes, and uh, of course I agree with you. Moreover, uh, I, we did it on purpose. For example, there was a youth movement, Zubr, in Belarus that existed late 90s, beginning of the millennium. Uh, and they were translating and studying, distributing uh, the literature of Solidarność of Poland, mm -hmm. the, this, this conspiracy, so-called, uh, or small conspiracy. And they were distributed the uh, books of Gene Sharp, From Dictatorship to Democracy. And th they were uh, speaking with, they were communicating with every resistance movement like uh, Otpor in Serbia, like uh, Khmara in Georgia, like Pora in, in, in Ukraine. There is a lot of communication going on. And, and of course now it, it is uh, much easier because you can do it online and you can learn from each other but you can also learn from your experience it was impossible for uh, for example in belarus to organize some camp of tents uh, as protest camp because it will you're, you're right it will be immediately crushed as as it happened in 2006 or uh, to stay uh, to stay uh, in the square during the night uh, because it will be immediately it would have been immediately crashed as it happened in 2010. So people are knowingly and uh, intuition <laughs> by intuition they started to organize this volatile protest. Mm -hmm. and, and I mean one of the problems that they face is the dictators are also starting to learn from each other. And I think, you know, some of the, the internet shutdowns in Belarus is something similar that happened in, for example, the Arab Spring. Um, is a lot of those Arab governments started shutting down the internet because protesters were organizing so effectively um, online. And so my question, therefore, is, you know, do you think that Lukashenko is learning from Putin or from Xi Jinping or from other dictators um, how, to, how to prevent protests? And is this, you know, how, is this, is this an, are we seeing an arms race between you know, democratic movements and dictators um, in the world today? Of course, they're learning from each other. Uh, I, I would say that Putin is learning from Lukashenko because Lukashenko was testing all kinds of uh, uh, suppression methods long before Putin. And mm -hmm. it is clear that there is a pattern taken from Belarus and 
uh, used in, in Russia. Of course, uh, the Chinese technologies are very helpful for dictators uh, to, to follow the social media and to identify the, the users that uh, are not loyal to, to, to the regime. Of course, this system SORM, uh, which was introduced in Russia, also is used in, in Belarus also to follow the um, uh, email accounts and uh, social media accounts. Uh, and that's why, you know, but yes, and uh, they are being more effective with new technologies, uh, dictators. Why? Because there is not much understanding from the gi giants of IT industries that they, ha they have to interfere, like Durov did, like Telegram. Durov uh, just declared that uh, there will be no censorship for Belarus uh, uh, Telegram channels. And recently he just changed Lukashenko's flag mm -hmm. into white, red and white. That is an enormous support. We were... Uh, addressing uh, Google and uh, Facebook and uh, Twitter to do something with uh, the blocking of uh, independent websites to to hurt Lukashenko's IT business, demanding to unblock it, everything. But nothing happens. Belarus was this insignificant. I think that uh, there has to be pressure on uh, IT industry to take care of cases like Lukashenko, because clearly it is uh, that IT is used for to deprive uh, people of their basic uh, rights and freedoms, not vice versa. And that has, something has to be done uh, with it. I know that the there is a strong measures are being taken ag against monopoly of Facebook or, or, or Google or Microsoft in, in, in the West, in the United States. That's one thing, that's good, but see how how the new technologies are used. You say CDLPN and, and Putin, but we have now uh, evidence that uh, the blocking of websites and uh, messages were done with the technology that was developed in the United States. Mm -hmm. So th th those cases are, or, or, or other cases like uh, this stunned grenade uh, that killed people in, in Belarus were uh, imported from Czechia. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, unlawfully, because there is an embargo on such a munition. So, in other words, if you take measures, uh, I mean, the democratic world against dictators, please enforce them. Mm -hmm. So, we, we've, you've mentioned already that sanctions should have been brought up quicker by the European nations, and that you know, the, you know, the measures we already have against Belarus should be enforced, and and perhaps we should put more pressure on you know private companies to 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 not support dictators, but what else, is there anything else you think that Western countries, the EU or the US should be doing right now to support the protesters in Belarus? They do have a lot of soft power, mm -hmm. a lot. They are lacking political will and uh, there is more soft power today, if you can say so, to introduce sanctions, Magnitsky Act. We didn't have this Magnitsky Act in 2010. Now, thanks to Bill Browder, we do have very effective instrument, which is much more effective than sanctions of European Union, because they, they introduced it and they lifted it. And they, they really encouraged Lukashenko to continue with crackdowns. Mm -hmm. Because in 2016, sanctions were lifted. Sanctions on criminals, 
which cannot be punished inside Belarus because there is no judici independent judiciary, there is no judiciary system in Belarus. And Magnitsky Act is something that uh, it is not easy to lift the sanctions against individuals who are there. Many, you know, it is... Uh, I remember when I was in prison, uh, there were many in innovative methods used uh, to put pressure, economic, financial pressure on Lukashenko, although IMF provided him uh, a year before 2010 and 2009, IMF provided him with a huge loan of three billion that was used to, to keep up in prison. So I'd like to ask you one final question, which is what can private citizens, ordinary people in Western countries, in Poland, in, in England, in, in America do uh, to help uh, protesters in Belarus and support the cause of freedom there? You know, I do believe in people more than I believe in politicians because, you know, it, it has been, unfortunately, a lot of real politics going around Belarus and uh, used as a tool in Belarus. Uh, but when I see people today responding to our tragedy and to people being killed and crippled and beaten and thrown in jail in Belarus, I do believe that people could do a lot, Pe those people who care, first put pressure on, on politicians, uh, if, if necessary, because there are a lot of politicians today do understand uh, what's going on in Belarus and they are able to take measures, but draw the attention of politicians in the United States or the legislature and, and the uh, executive branch as well in, in all European countries, because it should not go unnoticed. And I think that uh, uh, every every person uh, matters who, who supports Belarus, who supports freedom in Belarus. And well, you, you were finishing your answer. Uh. Uh, okay, yeah. You know, I once heard, uh, I think, very wise person, uh, Chinese dissident, uh, Nobel Peace, winner, Nobel Peace Prize winner, Li Xiaoba, who was in prison, and he said, you know, everything is interconnected in the world. I don't think that Solidarność and Velvet Re Revolution would happen in Europe without Tiananmen happening in, in China. Mm -hmm. I think he, he was absolutely right. There is, you, you mentioned yourself, that there is a uh, not only experience exchange between the protesters and freedom fighters, but there is also a mood of, of justice and, 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 and freedom that is being spread, uh, uh, especially when uh, the situation develops like it does in Belarus. So for, for the people who really care I would say let's make the 9th of August 2020 uh, the point of no return for Lukashenko and his regime. Okay, well, thank you very much for uh, being on this podcast. And I hope that you know, together with you know, all the people listening and, and everyone else that, that we can make that happen. Thank you very thank much. You so much. Thank you for the invitation. Okay. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you enjoyed our conversation about democracy, 
activism, and human rights in Belarus. If you would like to support the protests in Belarus, visit BelarusSolidarityFund.com. For more updates and more information on the situation in Belarus, follow the Human Rights Foundation on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.